Welcome to HSBC Global Viewpoint, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Welcome to TMI's Treasury Cast and HSBC's Cyboss Spotlight. I'm Eleanor Hill, editor of TMI. And I'm delighted to be working with HSBC to bring you an in-depth look at the events from this year's CYBOS. Throughout this series, we will explore the critical topics on the CYBOS 2023 agenda that will shape our industry in the next decade, including sustainability, digital acceleration and technological innovation. We'll examine the opportunities and the challenges in the areas of payments, securities, cash management and trade. So in the studio today, we have Vinay Mendonça, who is Chief Growth Officer, Global Trade and Receivables Finance from HSBC. And he's joined by Gert Silvest, who is co-founder, GM of Small Business and Fintech Product at TradeShift. So welcome, both of you. It's great to have you here. And Vinay, I know it's not your first time. It's been about 12 months since we last spoke, and there's been so much going on in the world in that time. So we've got an awful lot to talk about in terms of what's happened in the trade space and what's going to be happening around embedded finance, which is going to be our topic for today. So let's kick off maybe with a look at the challenges that corporates are facing and how their needs are evolving, particularly around trade, given, like we say, all of these things that are going on in the wider world. Vinay, maybe you can start us off there. Sure, thanks. And hi, Eleanor, and hi, everyone. It's great to be back again. In terms of challenges and what you know, clients have been telling us over the last 12 months. I think one of the uh, one of the kind of key trends remains quite you know, consistent from what we saw last year, which is really around building supply chain resiliency in the face of the various dislocations that clients have seen uh, for themselves, for their suppliers, and for their customers over the last three or four years on the back of the pandemic, the geopolitical tensions, and the like. Right, so. I think building that supply chain resiliency is critical. And mm. what we have seen customers do in that regard is work towards more agile supply chains where they can diversify their supplier bases and also then support those suppliers through liquidity, through trade terms that make it easier for them to procure materials and continue to kind of fuel the overall supply chain. So one trend continues to be around supply chain resiliency, and we're seeing much more uh, cementing of, of some of the initiatives or efforts that are taking place in that context, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the next few minutes. The second is the new business models that customers are evolving and adopting towards. And these are new ways of buying and selling, be them e-commerce marketplaces, their own web sales portal, or the like. And certainly we're seeing that through some of those new business models, customers are able to kind of widen their distribution reach or widen their supplier reach and find new corridors or new venues that they can. Some of the interesting opportunities or challenges that that throws up is how do they access financing on those platforms? Yeah. How are they able to kind of accelerate the wheels and how are they having efficiencies and some of the technology interfaces that are needed to take place on those new business models? So those new business models are the type where they might already have buyers and their suppliers are already connected, or they could be marketplaces where they're finding new buyers and suppliers. And either way, I think the challenge or the opportunity there is how do we offer solutions to help accelerate the wheels of kind of trade on those new venues or marketplaces. 
And the third, if I might, is, is just talk about the SME challenge, right? And I think uh, this remains, again, quite quite kind of consistent over the past few years is, you know, when we talk to our small and medium enterprise clients and businesses, they want to just do business. Banking is a distraction. They don't want to spend time having to raise money, raise financing. That's yeah. something that they almost want to see kind of transparent to them. And it's just part of their core process. So I think the challenge still remains as to how they can access financing at a low cost as part of their continuous process in a speedy manner. And that still remains quite a significant challenge. And as customers evolve, in my second point, new business models, how do SMEs then access financing yeah. uh, in, in those new environments that helps them kind of focus on what they need to because they don't have huge teams of people in treasury or accounts payable. They're focusing on their business. So how can we make financing as easy and simple for them? So those yeah. would be my three kind of three points. Brilliant stuff. A great summary there. And Gert, what would you add to that? What else are you seeing? I, I would echo Vinay's points. So as I think what we saw both on the COVID and the last few financial crises that that was that resilience of the supply chain was, was really a key topic. So companies saw disruption of their supply chain. So small and medium-sized companies, they are disproportionately hit by the financial troubles, we see that in terms of banking, for example, that their ability to access credit and get approved there, they represent an oversized number of rejections on credit applications. So we kind of know that there is a is a global finance gap, but from a treasury point of view, that that's also the challenges that companies see when the supply chain gets disrupted, both both on the indirect and and the indirect spend side of things. So so I think that's definitely one thing. And maybe adding to that, so some of the geopolitical changes we are seeing also forces a lot of companies to rethink parts of their supply chains. And as you say, Vinay, diversifying their supply chain. And that means a lot of change. So the agility there in a situation where also you are seeing procurement departments uh, getting crunched and less resources are, are flowing to them. It's a big challenge as you may have a more limited a number of suppliers to choose from and, and higher competition for those suppliers. We also see companies move to alternative strategy where they're looking across industries to find ways of pooling their spend, measure and competing on supplier sentiments for them to capture the, the important strategic suppliers and so on and so forth. Yes, it's quite interesting, that trend, isn't it? Companies having to be a lot more aware of their suppliers and not necessarily having the clout that they, they used to in, in some instances as well. So there's a lot happening there. But Vinay, Gert mentioned there this trade finance funding gap. And, you know, I think for as long as I've been writing about trade finance, we've always been talking about this. But like you said in your intro, we've got new technologies coming out. We've got new ways of potentially connecting people to finance. So why is there still this large gap? What's going on? Yeah, so I think, yeah, we, you know, different market sources will put this gap as anywhere between one and a half to two trillion dollars. So it is quite real at that macro number, but it becomes even more real when we talk to small and medium enterprises and, and, and they really have a challenge in accessing financing. I think just to make that problem even more stark and goes back to the earlier theme is one of the responses on supply chain resiliency has been to build higher inventory levels to kind of manage for contingencies and disruptions. But that keeping higher inventory levels comes at a cost. And again, you know, there's more need for financing and supporting those high inventory levels. So why is there the gap to kind of your question, right? I'd I'd say that the two main ingredients for banks or lenders to meet this gap or bridge this gap, one is just simply the 
access to customers, like how difficult or how manual or how human-based or how brick-and-mortar-based is the approach today in which an SME or a customer comes on to a bank and, and opens a banking account. So that would be you know, the process of kind of, you know, opening the bank account, the necessary account, the, the you know, the documents to open the account, the KYC, the proof of identity, or a whole range of KYC documents that are required, but also the customer due diligence that banks need to do when they open such accounts. All of that has an attendant initial onboarding cost. And then it also has an in-life cost because you have to kind of keep doing these checks at regular intervals as well. So that cost has certainly been a challenge in the traditional model in terms of allowing SMEs to have access to the overall banking kind of uh, lending network, so to speak. So I think on that one, there is progress being made, but that progress really is driven in different countries in different ways, depending on the way they digitize some of the documents I just mentioned. So where they will say, banks, you can access XYZ source for these particular documents belonging to an SME. And I think that is the first step towards it, but it's still quite fragmented as different countries come up with different ways in which we try to solve this problem. At our end, we're trying to digitize that process, connecting to the different sources in different countries. But what would help is like a common, consistent legal entity identifier, where an SME has a, you know, a singular source of where their documents are maintained and then a single golden source that multiple banks could access. Things like that with the industry needing to collaborate would be a quantum leap. But for now, we're working through the individual countries as, as they come up with regulations or have different sources of where this data could be kept. Mm. The second one where I'm far more encouraged on, and it's more progress since we last spoke 12 months ago, is around the credit side of it, which is how we underwrite. So the traditional way of underwriting credit and making finance available to such SMEs, which is pouring over historic cash flows, balance sheets, property loss, Clearly, you cannot do that for a mass scale proposition to SMEs. There has to be a smarter, quicker way of doing it. And the technology today allows for that because we do get not just the you know historic data. So we know, okay, this supplier has been consistently performing and sending goods over to this buyer and is being regularly paid almost 95 to 100% of the invoice value on a consistent basis for the last three years. So that historic data is probably richer and more relevant when we give make trade finance decisions. But we also then get the live data of a live invoice or a live PO. So you have this historic data and the live data, and those put together, we put it into a digital decisioning kind of uh, algorithm that throws out underwriting decisions much faster than the traditional way and probably much more accurate, you could say, than looking at historic statements. So we're quite much more enthused on the second front where we've seen quite a lot of progress. And at HSBC, we already have these digital decisioning scorecards that we're looking to scale up. Uh, we'll talk about it, you know, some of the challenges about how we could scale that using embedded finance. But what, what I'm encouraged is the underwriting teams now understand the new the use of this data and, and how it's probably sharper, more relevant, and we can almost in real time throw back credit decisions. But I think as we solve both of those two pillars, I think we'll be able to kind of bridge the straight financing gap by lowering the cost of onboarding and servicing these clients digitally entirely. That's critical. But then the underwriting piece, I'm seeing quite some good progress. So the way we kind of approach this credit will be quite different as well. Great stuff. Nice to hear about all of the, the progress that's happening there. As you say, we've still got some challenges, but we are making headway, which is fabulous. 
before we move into talking about embedded finance a little bit more, I wanted to come back to something that Vinay mentioned at the start, which was around the changing business models. And we're hearing so much talk about B2B, e-commerce, marketplaces and the finance within them, which is where the embedded finance comes in. But is it a lot of bluster? Is it a lot of hot air? Or are corporates actually genuinely really using these venues? And if so, tell us a little bit about how they can do that and how they can scale up. Yeah, no, I, I think you put put the spotlight on on a really important point here because it's it's almost like the world is is running in in two two different speeds. So if you look to the consumer world and you look to the B2B world, and if you look at the consumer world, you know, we have I'm I'm based in Denmark. Denmark is approaching being a cashless society. Sweden and China, like the advent of, of Alipay and other embedded payment means, has just been meteoric in, in their rise. And then if you look to the B2B space, things are kind of moving in a in a different tempo. So when when you look at e-commerce growth rates of about 15 to 20% a year, it looks still very different on, on the B2B side. So I... I, I come from the technology side and trade shift really comes from the technology side of things. So we look at things that what's the adoption rate of, of digitization in B2B trade. And we can see that the adoption of things, really basic things like electronic invoicing, it's about 3% a year. And when you contrast to the speed of adoption of e-commerce, you can see it's almost like a San Andreas uh, fold building up in real time, like the tension between those two realities is is just so huge. So so yes, yeah. it tells the story that large corporates, to a large extent, are not adopting the technologies of marketplaces, supply chain digitization, at least not based on some of the same economic models and growth models that you have seen in, in the consumer space, yeah. uh, consumer marketplaces, and consumer finance. And so I think that that drives a lot of the, the gaps that you're also seeing. So why has embedded finance taken off in the way that it has in the consumer space? Because it's embedded in the trade flows. And, and that creates a very rich data set where those who are underwriting installments, loans, credit lines, whatever, they are looking at a two-sided view of the world and they are looking at very rich trade data potentially, mm-hmm. centralized in these marketplaces or whatever. And I think in the B2B world, you still see companies, you know, they have all their trading partners. But when it comes to how they offer them technologies, they, they often treat them as if they are their properties. They are served in closed uh, portals yeah. that are one-on-one, very restricted. And that also means that the data that you need to actually drive a new generation of, of financial services and drive through the embedded finance approach also on the B2B side, it just runs on a very different speed. And companies tend to protect those data sources, which, which I don't think really is in their interest nor in the interest of the supply chains. Yeah, but it's difficult, isn't it, to change those kind of uh, legacy ways of doing things. And particularly, I guess, people have a lot of security concerns around data. But as you say, things do need to change. And and hopefully with embedded finance and people learning more about that, things will start to tilt the right way. But let's just take a very quick step back because we've talked about embedded finance but some of our listeners might kind of know the term, it's been bandied about, but just maybe define it for us and tell us a little bit more precisely how you think it's going to solve some of the issues that we've spoken about. Gert, maybe you can go first on that one. Sure. So 
So I think a definition of embedded finance is, is, is probably something like offering finance at the point of need mm-hmm. for a company. So, so we know it from when we, when we go to an e-commerce store and we do the checkout. This is the moment we have decided to purchase something. And this is where an offer of paying installments or adding some credit is offered to us. So it's at the point of yeah. need. But from a you know financing decision perspective, it's also the point in time where you have the actual insight into the purchasing behavior of the seller, you know about the buyer side, and 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 you can base your financing decisions on a different data set mm-hmm. than you can when people come out of context and approach a bank or a fintech lender or something like that. So so to me, it's 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 less about it's embedded in some technology than yeah. it's it's actually embedded in the in the actual transaction. And and now when you think about that, of course, there's a difference between the B2B scenario and, and, and the consumer scenario or business to consumer scenario. It's easy embedding things in a in a marketplace context like Amazon. We we, mm. we all kind of know how that works or or see the payment options embedded in in the apps we have on our phones. But when it comes to B2B, what really characterizes that is is much more complex processes that involve a lot of people. So you know, when a when a large corporate receives an invoice or wants to source a supplier or does a payment, it goes through approval hierarchies and whatnot. So embedding has a slightly different meaning in the B2B context. Yeah. And, and I think that's also why the adoption has come so late, because it's it's kind of linked to the technology adoption that's driven by by the large corporates. Yeah. But given the pressures that, that we are seeing, I think we are right now seeing the emergence of, of the B2B uh, embedded payment category. And I think it's driven by all the macro trends that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The supply chain resiliency, which incentivizes also large corporates to find ways of creating that kind of protection in the supply chain, including financial protection. And, and the gap between trends like e-commerce and then how the internal supply chain processes run and, and the level of yeah. digitization there. So I, I think these trends come, come very nicely together together absolutely and Vinay your thoughts on embedded finance and its potential to solve some of the challenges you know I think uh, like as Gerd defined it you know very simply it's it's about giving access to buyers and sellers they're meeting their banking needs financing needs payments needs at when they want it and where they want it right that's as simple for us as as we kind of you know which is the 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 ask from from us as lenders uh, just if I kind of go into another lens of looking at embedded finance, we try to see who the players are involved in a typical kind of embedded finance scenario. Obviously, you have the buyer and seller or the primary two parties, uh, but you would typically have a venue or a kind of distribution kind of platform on which the buying or selling is taking place or the connection is taking place. You would then have a tech provider of fintech that's embedded some of those core capabilities around, you know, some of the stuff Gert talked about using the data, the insights, pre-qualifying customers, identifying the right customers. And then you would have the banks providing, you know, the balance sheet, providing the credit or the payment trails, uh, that those kind of kind of things. So we see those as those three pieces, which is the venue kind of as the distributor, the fintech as the tech implanting and the bank with the balance sheet, the network, the underwriting abilities, right? So that's that's when we look at it, um, uh, but really it's about when they need it, where they need it. I think the other thing that, you know, I know we use the word embedded finance, 
but we see the potential much more than just finance. I think once you embed yourself in that buying selling journey, as Gert said, in the true trade as it happens, not somewhere else, but where the transaction actually happens, you can embed a lot more. You can go beyond banking as well to embed potentially insurance. You can embed shipping. You can embed logistics. So just the start of many things to make it easy for a client to avail all those services and focus really on what they need to, which is, you know, their business of buying what they're buying or selling at this All in one place. There's a whole world of embedded services out there for sure. But um, it's no small coincidence that we've got you both here together talking about embedded finance today because uh, you recently announced a joint venture, HSBC and TradeShift, and you're going to be building out these kind of solutions together and financial services apps. So, Vinay, tell us a little bit more about the joint venture. Sure. No, thanks. Just in in terms of context of the two main parties to the joint venture, I think I think you know you know HSBC is the world's largest trade bank, and we've customers uh, right from you know multinational conglomerates to SMEs. We facilitate over eight hundred billion dollars of trade flows annually, and really trade's been in our DNA, as you know. Uh, we're super kind of excited about partnering with TradeShift, which is you know a leading provider of B two B solutions. They've got over 100 of the largest corporate enterprises globally in the world, and they're supporting about 260 billion of kind of annual gross merchandise value with, you know, for, and with supplier information and data for over a million suppliers on their platform. So it's really the coming together of, of these two kind of players who've got much of their DNA co in trade to form this JV. But really, what is the JV kind of, you know, what are we trying to do here? And, and it goes back to the embedded finance context we set, which is really about offering solutions for buyers and sellers as part of their journeys on trade shift where they are buying and selling. So we want to make financing, whether that's post-shipment, pre-shipment, cards available as part of those journeys and, and powered by the technology that trade shift brings in. And it's not just the, the technology around digitizing the payments or digitizing the purchase order, the invoice and the trade, but it's the data and the insights that we talked about, the behaviors that we see using that technology and kind of put that together, right? And finally, this has the opportunity and the JV is the opportunity also to do a lot of new things as well. So digitizing the traffic on trade chips one, on other venues is there, but also we talked about creating marketplace solutions, which trade shift has, and I'm sure Gert will talk about, but uh, you know, they're trying to see how we can pull those t- together as well. Mm-hmm. Finally, finally, you know, using the synergies of this of the partnership uh, and our network and our franchise, we'd certainly want to make available TradeShift's core proposition of digitizing kind of purchase orders, invoice, and that interaction between buyers and sellers to our customer base as well. So go beyond just the hundred of the largest clients that TradeShift has but show it to our large corporate and our mid-cap customers as well Mm -hmm. because they have the same problems in terms of dealing with paper, dealing manually with thousands of suppliers. Could that be digitized as well? So the synergy is financing on TradeShift and their platform. So the solution, looking at other third-party venues, looking at things like marketplaces, but then also taking the core TradeShift proposition and making it available to a larger base of HSBC customers. So those are some of the objectives kind of we've seen uh, through the JV, but it's really coming together of of, of two organizations very steeped in trade. Gert? Excellent stuff. Yeah, Gert, let's get your thoughts on kind of what you'll be looking to achieve and, and also what, what you think makes this JV unique. Yeah, sure. So um, in in my past, together with my co-founders, we, we have a past in, in open government 
networks. Uh, so, Vinay, I, I like you mentioned the notion of you know uh, company identities. You know, what is it that that helps lower the barriers to to give companies access to finance? And I think why we founded the company was very much based on the idea that if you open the benefits of, of the digitization that you're running, so as, as a large corporate, if you can find ways of, of sharing the value, sharing the insight and the data with your supplier base and with all the other participants, be it logistics or finance or marketplace operators, then then you get something that's much more valuable than, than the digitization mm-hmm. in itself. And I think it has to do with all the stuff we, we just talked about, you know, who are the identities of these companies that 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 need to pay, get paid, get access to finance, get resilience. I think that's when you when when you share in the the upside of, of that digitization, things become interesting. So for TradeShift, we've always been on a mission, not just to digitize, but hopefully change the way that, that companies can get access to finance, that companies can get access to market. And I think in this partnership, which actually stretches a long time back, you know, uh, we've been working together for for many years. We wanna we we see the potential of of marrying the the global reach that we have today with with global corporates, uh, our presence in 150 co- countries, with also a global player like like HSBC yeah. that is playing in the trade finance arena that has the same kind of global reach as as we have. So. To me, it's, it's really the meeting of, of the trade, trade facilitation, trade digitization side of things with the finance and payment capabilities and, and customer base of, of HSBC that, that comes together. And, and I think as we are dealing with, with global companies, it, it, it requires the meeting of, of these two kind of very specialized capabilities, which I don't think you see anywhere in the world kind of concentrated in a, in a single company. So I, th- I think that's unique opportunity of the JV. That's actually to bring those two capabilities together in, in a middle ground that that doesn't have necessarily the the, the challenges that, that a regulated entity faces yeah. Yeah. And, and has resources and capabilities that we as a, a little bit old 10, 12 year old startup uh, also don't have on on the financing and and, yeah. and and trade financing side of things. Yeah, yeah, you're established compared to some of the others. But like you've both said, you've you've got this great global reach. But for the solutions that you're working on, and I'm sure our listeners are kind of quite intrigued about, are there specific markets you're going to be starting with, Vinay? And is there a, a timeline in mind not to put you under too much pressure? You know, I think like we announced, we we do want to kind of finalize the incorporation of the JV towards, uh, you know, before the first quarter of next year. And then certainly, uh, from, you know, we want to start, already, we are already working with Gert and the team on some of these solutions and embedded in financing. But just a couple of points. One is after the trade transformation program that HSBC, we ran to transform some of our technology systems. The good news is we now largely develop things once and then we just scale them out to the different markets for the last yeah. mile bit of work. So a lot of work that we do, we do it once and then it's really about just landing it in different markets for the last mile, you know, local compliance, those kinds of pieces of work. So to that extent, uh, it, it is truly global. But yes, we have a few markets which we have selected uh, right now, which are working through, which kind of mirror trade shifts propositions, a couple in Asia and, and certainly in the, in, in, the, in the Western world, a few larger markets as well. What I would say, though, is we follow the client on this and to a large extent, and this is, you know, keeping with the, your earlier question to Gert, and what is unique at the JV? 
I think one unique point is also the fact that we can cover both ends of the trade, right? So we cover the large buyer, which could be in the West, but we can also cover the SME supplier in an emerging market in the East. And mm -hmm. I think to that extent, so when we talk about delivering the solution, it's not just delivering it into the buyer market. It must be available for buyer and for seller. And to that extent, it's truly global because the financing or the cards or the solutions we offer work for both of them. Uh, so, so very much it's about kind of looking at which markets the, you know, those buyers and sellers are mapped at as we look at the data. But we are already kind of te technically live with the solution in one of the Asian markets. And then we've got two or three uh, uh, lined up for 2024. But a large part of the solution, like I said, will be really around not so much where the system necessarily sits. It's more about following the buyer supply chain and which markets they're, they're spread across. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, great stuff. So just a couple of quick questions to wrap up then, because we've we've discussed an awful lot today, Vinay, already. So for our listeners out there, our large corporates, what should they be thinking about off the back of everything that we've spoken about? What do you think are the key action points for them? Sure. So I think I'm, I'm sure they're all quite actively thinking about supply chain resiliency, given given the events over the last few years. Uh, I think the key part, what we've seen from many of our corporate customers, is they are very quickly thinking how the new business models of new technologies, platforms, venues, marketplaces will help them with the agility, with the diversification of risk they require to address supply chain resiliency. So really, the new business models of the part. And to that extent, uh, what we're seeing is many of our customers are trying to work out what platform strategies they want to have. Is that a proprietary one? Is that a white-labeled one? Is that a third-party one? Or do they just join a marketplace? So those are some of the decision points they're thinking about. And I think through this process, and Gert talked about it, is I think most of our large corporates know that a big part of supply chain resiliency is making sure that the supply chain is resilient. So not just the first tier, not the second tier, but the third tier and the beyond, mm -hmm. those suppliers have access to financing and liquidity when they need it. And that's what this platform ecosystem can help them. So they're thinking of supply chain and the resiliency, new business models, the platforms that they need to make their choices on, and then how the financing solutions embedded. I think it's it's that's the thought process I think most clients are, are probing into. It's the how now that they're discussing. So what are the ways in which technology integrations can happen? How can they make the data available? How can they have you know, data visas and jurisdictions? Those are some of the things that we know corporates and we're spending time with many customers where we're co-creating such solutions and, and that's how their thought process is. So really to your question, I think these are some thoughts which we would request kind of uh, you know, the audience to think about in mm. terms of resiliency, the platform economy, new business models, and how financing sits in it, but then really around the technology choices that they're going to make to make make all of that happen. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to think about, but lots of lots of assistance out there and lots of people with expertise to call on as well. So final quick question then, what are you both very excited about in terms of the opportunities that we've discussed? So there's so much that we've spoken about today, but on a on a personal and professional level, what are you most excited about? Vinay, go on. Sure. So for me, I think we, like you said, we covered a lot and, and those are the known opportunities and we're all planning yeah. on how we address those. But I'd say the most excitement part of the JV is the talent that comes together in one place, which is a combination of 
Gert and his team who really understand the whole procurement process for clients and how that works. The underwriters and the credit from the bank side that come together. And I think the clients, most importantly, and their suppliers. And I think co-creating through this JV construct, I think we're going to solve for the unknown opportunities or problems that we haven't covered in the last few minutes. That probably is the most exciting part for me. It's, yeah. it's not what we know. It's about what we can do with, with this construct that we've created of the right talent in the tech stack. Yeah, definitely. And Gert, your thoughts? So again, we, we've been working together for, for a long time. So also super excited about the opportunity to work together with the people on from, from HSBC that, that will join the JV. I think since we started working together, what, what really struck us was also the ability to see the opportunity in the network play and the embedded play. So for each of us, I think it's all about breaking out of our own uh, little bubbles and see yeah. how the trade and digitization side comes together with the, the, the payment and finance side. Super excited about seeing, you know, being at the start of, of this whole emerging B2B embedded finance space, because I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, I think everybody is predicting a, a big opportunity for embedded finance. But I I also feel that in many ways, because of the forces we've talked about on marketplaces, digitization, financial crisis, it's all pushing us in, in, in a direction where I think enterprises are starting to become aware that this combination of technology and financing is also key to help them on some of the other front in the supply chain. And I think everybody could ask themselves the question of embedded into what? And that begs the question of what what is what is really the marketplace strategy? What is what is the supply chain digitization strategy that that the companies are following? I'm excited for you both, uh, and look forward to hearing about all of the progress that comes out of this joint venture. And I hope that we can tempt you back next year, and we can discuss what's uh, happened in the, in the twelve months uh, that are to come. But thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. It's been great to have you here and to hear about everything that's happening in the world of uh, trade finance and particularly embedded finance. So much appreciated. Thanks, Eleanor. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. This has been HSBC's Cyber Spotlight, a podcast mini-series produced especially by TMI for HSBC Global Viewpoint. To discover other episodes in this series, search for HSBC Global Viewpoint or TMI's Treasury Cast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to find out more about HSBC's presence at Cybos, visit gbm.hsbc.com forward slash Cybos. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Global Viewpoint. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes.